as it is the fifth Sunday of the month, which occurs three or four times a year, I'd like to take our morning to answer some questions that you have submitted, and Lord willing, we will be back in James next week. In fact, Lord willing, uh, we will finish the Epistle of James next week, uh, and then following that, we will continue on into First Timothy. We'll finish James, then First Timothy. But let me get to these questions. I uh, got a lot of good questions, and naturally, as our church grows, uh, I'm getting more and more questions. So uh, quite possibly towards the end, uh, if we run out of time, I'm going to do something new, uh, which I'm calling the speed round, which I will answer some questions that really just need a yes or no. I could elaborate, uh, but uh, really, I think a yes or no would suffice, or just a little bit of an explanation. Um, I'm torn in doing this. Uh, but if we get to the speed round, I will also be referencing old Q&As. I want to answer all your questions, especially uh, ones that are pertinent. And a lot of times the same questions are asked over and over again. Um, and if they're porn, I do want to answer them. Uh, but for the sake of time, because I'm getting so many questions, uh, for some I may just refer to uh, the website where you can look up my answers to those questions previously. Okay. Well, question number one is how uh, are we to handle the Sabbath as New Testament believers? You're familiar with the Sabbath, and you are probably familiar. You may not have noticed, but now that I mention it, you might notice that when we talk about our worship services, we just call it Sunday service or the Lord's Day. We don't refer to it as the Sabbath because the Sabbath is something very different. Now, we first hear about the Sabbath uh, or mainly hear about it in the Ten Commandments. But you have to understand that there is no command to New Testament or New Covenant believers to honor the Sabbath. In fact, the Ten Commandments themselves were to the Israelites. The only reason we obey nine of the Ten Commandments is because they are repeated in the New Testament. And what you have to understand that the Ten Commandments were part of the bigger Mosaic law. So you are to, if you were to claim that we today in the church are obligated to obey the Ten Commandments as they were written to Israel, then you have to include all of it, including the sacrifices, the various holidays, uh, all of those things that they celebrated, right? The dietary laws, okay? The laws of cleanliness, things like that. Now, again, we, re- we uh, follow nine of them because they are repeated for us as commands in the New Testament, the one of the Ten Commandments that is not repeated in the New Testament is the Sabbath. Something that might help you understand this is the Sabbath came with Israel, not Adam. And the reason was so that the Israelites could look back on a regular day of the week to celebrate their Creator and celebrate their creation or His creation. Now, we can really do that, and we are called to do that as New Testament believers all the time, not just on a specific evening where we do not work. Technically, the Sabbath is still on Saturday, and some still hold to that, such, that, such as Seventh-day Adventists would be the most recognized. If you ever wonder why their church services are on Saturdays, is because they believe we are still bound by the Sabbath. We are not commanded to hold it. Now, in the New Testament, the only times you actually hear the Sabbath mentioned 
are when Jews are being evangelized in Acts, and so they would be familiar with the Sabbath. And then when Paul tells the Colossians actually to not let anyone judge you in regards to things like new moons and the Sabbath. So he actually views it in a negative way, like don't let people pressure you because you're not following the Sabbath. So why do we worship on Sundays? Why, are we, why would we say to not worship regularly uh, would be against the Scriptures? Well, it's not because of the Sabbath. Uh, the specific day, Sunday, is not commanded. But we do so through a tradition of the early church and where they started meeting on Sundays as a celebration of the day of the week that Jesus was resurrected. And so we really follow that as a tradition. Now, it's talking, um, gathering together is commanded. A day is not commanded. But we are told in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, that we are to gather together with the saints. And if we are not, if we don't do that, then we are in sin. Let me read that for you. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And here it is, verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that last part just says, as the world gets worse and the return of Christ becomes closer and closer, then all the more we need to gather together to encourage one another to stimulate to love and good deeds. Now, just as a side note, we are given some indication of what this means, not forsaking our own assembling together. Forsaking is very different than I'm on vacation, or they scheduled me to work, okay? Now, obviously, if it's a pattern of I can never go to church because of work, you need to find another job. But forsaking is that mental saying, I will not go. I do not want to go. And they see, as is the habit of some. So this isn't just once in a while. This is calling someone to do something in a repetitive, habitual fashion to worship with uh, believers and participate in the assembling of the believers together. Okay, question number two. Could you expand on biblical assurance of salvation? If you're not familiar with that term, assurance of salvation is a doctrine that just sounds, it is what it sounds like knowing that you are for sure saved. So what does the Bible say about being saved and knowing you are saved, confident that you are redeemed and when you die you will go to heaven? God wants us to have assurance of salvation. He does not want us to live life wondering if we will one day make it to heaven, if somehow we have appeased God enough. Now we know that there are followers of many religions who do this. This is the basis of pretty much every religion outside of authentic Christianity. It's works-based. If you're good enough, you can go to heaven or nirvana or be reincarnated or whatever version they have, right? Very big in the Catholic Church. 
right? It's about how well are you doing, and then there's that proverbial scale. If your good deeds outweigh the bad, then you'll get into heaven. Now, we know that that is not biblical. We know that our good deeds will never outweigh our bad deeds, and that's why all of our faith and trust and salvation is found in the deeds of Jesus Christ, not our own. So, with that, understanding the gospel, we understand that the criteria for salvation is objective, not subjective. Subjective being, you know, is it enough, right? You don't know. It is objective. Do you believe these things about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us? There's an objectivity to that. And so, um, that gives us an assurance of salvation. So, I'm going to read some verses that give you the criteria for salvation and thus assurance of salvation. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Very, there's no scale there. Believe or don't believe. Right? Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then uh, my favorite, because it very clearly explains what we are to do or what the unbeliever needs to do, Romans 10.9 and 10, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So, if you have done that truly in your heart, you are saved. If you believe those things, you are a believer. However, the challenge then, because our hearts are wicked and deceitful, how do you know if you've truly done this, or if it's just lip service, or if it's just your country's culture or your family's traditions and culture. There are a lot of people uh, in the Bible Belt who would say, I am a Christian, but they are not. And it's very clear that they are not. It is just culture. They never go to church. They live uh, sinful lives. And so that leads us to how do you know for sure if you are saved, if you have professed these things, you all know it, fruit fruit, because there will be a changed life if you are truly saved. We saw this early on in James, James chapter 1, verse 22. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So if you're just listening to the word, you say, yeah, I believe that, I believe that, but you're not doing the word, you are deceiving yourself into thinking you are saved when you may not be, Okay. Now, we've got to be very careful here because someone can easily say like, well, then I'll just try harder and that'll make me a Christian. Again, no, right? Because then you're going back to that subjective scale. It has to be belief in the gospel and fruit will naturally arise out of that. Perfection, no. A desire to pursue perfection, yes, right? And so all of a sudden, there is this innate, God-given hatred of sin, guilt over sin, uh, that godly sorrow over sin we talked about last week, which responds to sin 
uh, with emotional guilt because we have offended God, not because, well, now my mom's mad or now I'm going to lose my job or whatever, worldly ramifications, okay? Assurance of salvation also means this. You cannot lose your salvation, okay? Once saved, always saved. John 10, 27 through 29. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's no if there. There's no qualifications. It is done. They are going to heaven. I have given them, once for all, eternal life. They can't lose it. Verse 29, again, we're in John 10. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So, when you say or someone teaches that you can lose your salvation, they are not just besmirching the reality of the gospel. They are criticizing the very nature and character of God. Nobody can snatch us out of his hand. With all that being said, I think I mentioned it in a sermon recently. Because of that, because we can be deceived, because we can think we're believers but are not. You just heard the testimonies of people last week who got baptized because they were baptized before when they thought they were believers but have since realized they were not. So 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? I'm going to give you a very important caveat, and this is not to make you think you're a believer if you're not. But in churches like ours, where we hold the Word of God very highly, and thus I will not preach, well, it's okay if you don't do this. I will teach and preach, this is what we're supposed to do, and we have to do it because God wants us to do it. When we hold a standard like that in churches like ours, there is more of a tendency to doubt your salvation because you see that the standard is so high, and the higher the standard, which is in the Bible, the less we meet that standard, right? So, like if you think you're a really good runner and then you start looking at the times in the Summer Olympics, you'd be like, I don't think I'm a good runner, right? Um, So, just understand that. And when that happens, you go back and test yourselves and say, well, what does my heart desire and do I believe the gospel? Because that's what it is, right? Um, I say this about membership. I say this about salvation, I do not want to, nor do I have the right to, nor do you have the right to make it harder to become a Christian than God does. It's believing the Bible and then the fruit comes out naturally. Yes, there's effort there. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But there's automatically a desire and an enablement by the Holy Spirit. right? So if we start adding all these criteria that the, uh, the Bible doesn't, um, in fact, I think the person who asked this question was asking this because uh, in the charismatic church, they would, many would say, well, you're not saved till you show evidence of the sign gifts. So you believe that, there's fruit, but until you speak in tongues, you're not truly saved. 
that's adding to the Bible. Even if the gift of tongues existed, which still today, which they do not, that has never been set in, as a criteria for salvation. And, and this is not... We need to have compassion because there are people who think this because this is what they've been taught. They've been taught this by their pastors, by their disciples, by their parents. And so we need to be praying and have compassion. But really, it's just the simplicity of the gospel, which includes fruit that arises out of a life that is saved. Question number three. In the epistles, accounts of the gospel appear caveated by qualification of staying faithful such as in 1 Corinthians 15.2 and Colossians 1.23. We know there is assurance of salvation, so how are we to regard such qualifiers? Is it just exhortation to persevere in the context of the persecuted church or in regard to false teachings or perhaps even warning that some are not in the faith? And so what uh, this person is referencing is there's a lot of verses that tell Christians basically like you need to keep doing this so that you are saved. So does that just negate everything I just said in the last question? No. These passages are speaking of those who have made a profession of faith and perhaps even intellectually believe the truths of the gospel but have not made a true commitment in their hearts. There are people, there are scholars in our world, very well-known people, who will tell you, based on my study, I believe there was a man, Jesus Christ, who was crucified, dead, and raised on the third day who claimed to be the Savior and the Son of God. I believe those truths, but I refuse to follow him. So there does need to be a commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And this, a lot of times, this is simply, I believe that, but I don't want to follow that. Why? Because they don't want the fruit. They want the fruit of the world. They want the fruit of the flesh. They want to pursue those things. Right? There was a, a girl at this youth camp we went to a few weeks ago, and all the counselors were sharing prayer requests. And one of the ladies said, I have a girl that we brought from our church. And these are all junior hires. And she said, I believe in God. I believe what the preacher is saying but I don't want to follow that God because I want to be able to grow up and have sex and do drugs and all the things of the world. There is a commitment in the heart and the mind that needs to be made. And so these passages are calling out those who are just going through the motions. You have to understand this was a very religious time, so almost everyone followed some religion. The smallest of, I shouldn't say the smallest, but one of the smaller ones was Christianity, Right? Judaism was small also in the Roman world. You had that polytheism right, that we all studied uh, when we were in high school, Zeus and all that. So everyone had some sort of temple or religion that they defaulted to. And so naturally there were some in the church who weren't truly saved, especially because you didn't have the New Testament completed yet. So they just had to hear from people who maybe heard Jesus teaching or Paul had visited their church or something like that. And so their people are going through the motions. The parable of the soils, Luke 8, is a very good uh, passage on this because it isn't just 
one seed responded. There's some that sprung up. They were excited. There was joy there. So this is the gospel. They responded to the gospel and made a profession and some sort of commitment. But then, for example, some were choked out by the worries and desires of the world, right? And so that can still happen. There can be an intellectual knowledge. There can be a a confession with the mouth, but it's not in the heart. And then time eventually tells that, well, they never really were saved in the first place. And that's what these passages are talking about. Even among Paul's companions, Paul's companions that were with him and hearing his teaching and ministering with him, some turned out to be unbelievers, Two examples are Hymenaeus and Alexander, 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. Some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So there was some sort of faith belief, but then they rejected it. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. We all have friends we know who are like this, right, who maybe even led us to the Lord, but now they're like, I don't believe in Jesus. I was never really a Christian. Um, Could you imagine doing that and your names are forever in the New Testament like these two? That would be. Well, let's move on. Many Christians say God loves everyone, which to a degree from my understanding is true. He cares for everyone, but under common grace, and only His chosen are truly loved by God. Is this biblically accurate? How does that statement relate to common grace? Let me explain common grace first. Common grace is that grace of God by which we see his grace even on those who aren't believers. He cares and provides for all people. The farmers of the world do not just raise, uh, grow crops and it's only given to Christians. Right? God provides the rain and the sunlight and all of those things so that Everyone eats, even those who don't love him or even acknowledge him. Now, although we see several characteristics of God in this common grace, a big one, of course, is his love. Yes, he loves the world, and we see that again in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Doesn't mean the whole world is saved but that he loved the world and that prompted him to give his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We see his love for the world and that he allows them to experience and enjoy life. He gives them, most importantly, an opportunity to repent and he reveals himself to them through his word and through us who speak forth the word, not to mention his creation and their consciences. Romans 1 tells us people know there is a God. And although he loves the saved and elect in a more specific and deeper and more abundant way, you have to understand that at one point you were part of the world. And he loved you, sent his son and told you about that, and then you were saved. Okay? So we don't have time to unpack it, But when you read the scriptures, it is very clear that God the Father loves the world. He loves his children, believers more, and he loves his son, Jesus Christ, supremely. Okay? Question number five. 
in reading about the jealousy of God, is there an appropriate expression of, quote, negative emotions by man, such as jealousy or anger? For example, can jealousy by a spouse be appropriate? Can feeling anger or frustration and witnessing cruelty or suffering be acceptable? So first, I want to say that if we're going to classify these as emotions, then we need to define them as feelings or emotions as a response to truth, okay? Not just wake up and you're grumpy, but a response to something someone is saying to your spouse, a response to something that you're seeing in the news. So the question is, is there godly jealousy or godly anger? And the answer is yes, but be careful. That does not mean any and all forms of jealousy and anger are godly. So jealousy in the Greek is technically just a word that means a strong desire. It is the Greek word zelao. I like to say that because it's fun to say, but also because it's where we get the English word zeal, passion. It's a strong desire. And when we see it as that, it brings great light to the fact that, for example, God is a jealous God. That's found all over the Old Testament, including the Ten Commandments um, and the condemnation of idol worship. Paul tells the Corinthians that he is jealous for them with a godly jealousy. That's 2 Corinthians 11, 2. But the passage goes on to explain that the context of this jealousy of Paul for the Corinthians is that the Corinthians were turning to false idols and the false apostles that were teaching about these false gods. And what that means is Paul's jealousy for the Corinthians was not just, oh, you like Peter more than me. It was that they were turning away from God. So godly jealousy is focused on God, not self. The difference between sinful jealousy and godly jealousy is selfishness. Sinful jealousy is coveting, right? That's a typical, typically when we say jealous, right? You want that thing, which often means we don't want him to have that thing because you're jealous. Why does he get it? Why don't I get it, right? It can be stuff, it can be popularity, it can be wealth, it can be physical satisfaction. It can even be things that God deems good, such as a spouse and children, okay? Discontentment with the circumstances God has given, which leads to a discontentment with God's sovereignty and plan. That's sinful jealousy. Godly jealousy seeks the will of God. It is strongly desires God's will in your life, in others' lives, in the world. So the classic example of jealousy in a marriage or relationship would be that burning anger and jealousy, right? When a, when a husband, for example, sees uh, his wife talking to another man. That's not good because that centers around your discomfort, your fears, your distrust, your feeling whatever, not good enough, not handsome enough, whatever it may be. And you may say, well, it's because I want her to be faithful to me. I want her to, you know, I'm, I'm her husband. Well, therein lies the problem and the fine line between godly and sinful jealousy. Even when the motivations are right, I want her to be a godly woman, godly wife, there may be sin mixed in there, the selfishness. And if there's a reason 
On a side note, if there's a reason to distrust your, distrust your spouse, then there are much bigger issues that you probably need to deal with in your marriage and in your heart. Now, that line is even finer, thus easier to cross when it comes to godly or righteous anger. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 say, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. So righteous anger would have the same principles to keep it from being sinful, focused on God's glory and others. And so when you're focused on God's glory, you will still have compassion and love people, but you will be angry at the sin. And so it is very, uh, it's, let me put it this way. Godly anger or righteous anger is a thing, but I don't know anyone who has practiced it fully because your sin just seeps in there, right? You're angry for the right things, persecution of Christians, murder, horrible things people do to children these days or whatever it is, but then all of a sudden, you're like, I want to kill that guy. Well, then that's wrong, right? Or th- things like that. So we got to be careful. And I guess what I'm saying is don't bank on your jealousy or your anger being fully righteous and thus pursue it, right? And so if it, if it comes because it's an emotion based on truth, then try to make it so it's godly or holy, which I think we would all agree in most cases, it would be to get rid of that anger or jealousy completely. Number six, what, is exa- what exactly does the idea of being one flesh look like in a marriage and what are some practical ways this can be exemplified in a marriage? So the idea of a husband and wife becoming one flesh is found all over the New Testament, including the teachings of Jesus in Matthew and Mark. It's found in uh, that, that well-known passage on marriage, Ephesians 5, specifically Ephesians 5.31. The one flesh principle is found in 1 Corinthians 6 on the prohibition of sexual immorality. All of them quoting Genesis 2.24, which, which was spoken upon God creating and joining the original man and the original woman. Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, we know that at that moment, Adam and Eve did not fuse into one freakish, singular, physical body, okay? This is not about the physical, biological flesh. If it were... This union would not make sense as neither Adam and Eve nor any other married couple fuse into one physical object. The next logical step, because they talk about flesh and one, um, says, oh, this must be talking about the marriage bed, the consummation of the marriage, okay? Um, by the way, you might have noticed in the last few months, I, I phrase these things more delicately since we started having our junior hires join our service, Okay? But junior hires and adults, this is talking about sex. This is talking about intimacy and marriage, which is only for marriage. This is definitely part of what one flesh means. Okay, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 6 as such, right? Um, But that's not all that one flesh means. It does mean uh, peripherally that 
Intimacy is only between husband and wife, okay? And that's what Paul elaborates on in 1 Corinthians 6. And of course, when you talk about a sexual intimacy, the greatest symbol of one flesh is what is often the result of that is one flesh that carries the DNA of both daddy and mommy. And so we see that as well. One flesh, of course, also prohibits divorce. Now, what you need to understand, because although it's in the New Testament a lot, it's quoting the Old Testament right at the beginning. We need to look at what the Hebrew word means. And the Hebrew word flesh refers to the whole body or being, which goes beyond just what is physical. So it pans out not just in the physical, but also in the emotional and the social. It's not that the husband and wife are to laugh at the same things, like all the same things, but in marriage, there should be a meeting of emotional and social needs primarily by the spouse. And when it comes to daily living on this temporary planet of ours, the one flesh principle also means that spouses are to care for one another as you care for your own body, your own flesh. They are to become one intellectually, spiritually, financially, and in every other way. They are united as a team. They are united together. They are to work together in the church and in the world as a well-oiled machine. Not always just doing their own thing. You have your life. I have my life. We're just going to agree to disagree. That is not biblical marriage. That doesn't, that's not one flesh. Now, when you understand that's what one flesh means, and this is, this is uh, fleshed out, no pun intended, all over the New Testament in regards to teaching on the roles of husband and wife and what marriage means, you see the importance of roles in marriage because we are sinners and we like to rebel. And who do we rebel against besides God? Those who are closest to us. We like to argue with our spouses. We like to push away from our spouses. We like to choose X simply because they chose Y. And you can see why it is so necessary that there is a leader in the marriage and one who submits so that when they are not acting like one flesh, there is someone who essentially calls the shots and has the final say. You understand this in your company. People have tried this right before COVID. Remember that big tech company said, everyone's going to get the same pay and equal voice. The company went bankrupt within a, a few months. You can't do it. You need a manager. You need a boss. You need a CEO. When someone says, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this, they want to do this, what do we do for someone to finally say, this is the direction we're going, okay? So you see, even from that, if you want to have a unified one flesh, the roles in marriage have to be fulfilled. Otherwise, there is no way two sinners, redeemed or not, could ever fulfill the one flesh principle. This is also why disunity within the marriage can become so devastating and destructive. Even more so than when a child rebels against a parent or disunity between coworkers or even biological siblings because only the husband and wife are designed in creation to be one flesh. Same thing, right? Pull apart two Legos, no problem. 
pull your body apart, you're going to have some issues, right? And so you see the analogy in the picture there and the unity that needs to be there. And so if you're married and you find this is not the case, God is so gracious and you can work towards that, okay? And in that, there's a reality of many, many Christian, godly Christian couples who are in that place and need to work towards exemplifying and being the one flesh. And I repeat that because those of you who are single and think, oh, we disagree, we have problems, we don't get along, think it'll go away because you say, I do, you are fooling yourself. So a lot of this does come down to who you choose to marry, which begins with marrying a like-minded Christian uh, and then moving from there. Okay? Question number seven. Speaking of marriage, should unbelievers be encouraged to have Christian weddings when living together or even if they're just dating? So a Christ, by Christian marriage or Christian wedding, this person uh, says it's when a pastor is officiating. Uh, vows include things like in the presence uh, of God. Um, how do I know this? Am I just assuming that? No, because I asked her. I'm just saying that because that's why it's so important you guys put your name on these questions, okay? Um, I want to start with two big picture issues, okay? And so this is uh, unbelievers, right? Should unbelievers have a pastor officiate their wedding? Should they have Christian vows? Um, Two big picture issues first. God has ordained and allows marriage for all people, whether Christian or not. It is not a sin for two non-Christians to marry one another. It is a sin for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. You understand this. That's not what this, that's outside of the, this question. So marriage is still a good thing, even, even if the two getting married are unbelievers. And in God's grace, they can still have a very productive and happy marriage that contributes to the overall well-being of society that God has created. The second big picture issue is this. Nowhere in the Bible is officiating weddings instructed as a role for pastors. It's something we do. We're glad we do it, but it's not in the Bible. In our country, and I believe most countries, for legal, tax reasons, whatever, it is actually the government that regulates weddings. And so even though I am able to officiate weddings, I still need a license or approval from the county of San Mateo and the state of California. Okay? So, though a minister of the church, and of course going to say things, preach a sermon, things like that, that are appropriate for two Christians getting married, when I officiate a wedding, I am also serving as a legal representative of the state because it's a legal union that we're participating in there. So, should two non-Christians have a pastor officiate their wedding? There is nothing inherently wrong about that so long as nobody lies, so long as nobody implies there is something there that they believe that is not there. Can they say in the presence of God? Well, yeah. No amount of unbelief or living together prior to marriage is going to prevent God's omnipresence. But they cannot, you don't want to encourage or make two unbelievers imply that they believe in God or follow God. 
If that person thinks that going through these Christian vows and invoking the name of God and Jesus Christ and not till death do we part, but until the Lord returns, think it's cute or fulfillment of a lifelong dream they've had since they were little girls and went to a Christian wedding, that shouldn't be done if they don't truly believe those things. Either way, there's nothing forbidden in Scripture for a pastor officiating the wedding of unbelievers. Would I do it generally? No, I would not. A lot of it just for practical reasons, simply because I wouldn't be able to say things that I want to say. Uh, also because I would require them to go through premarital with me, though that would probably be one of the main reasons I would do it, depending on the couple, because they're going to hear the gospel so much in the required sessions that they're going to either get saved or find someone else to do their wedding. Um, and frankly, just practically speaking, uh, with that premarital, it is going to take a lot of time, time that I would rather devote to those in my church. Okay. Um, I mentioned this, I think, last week, and I'm going to kind of uh, shoehorn it in here. Just remember truth over feelings, okay? As a believer, you can trust your gut and your instincts so long as you are saturated in the Scriptures. However, it's always a good idea to test to see if something is true or not according to the Scriptures, especially if you have a, a, a big feeling that this may not be right. Go back to the Scriptures and see if it's clearly spoken or if there, there is instruction there. Okay. Uh, question 8, based on your sermon from James four eleven through 12, is it considered slander or speaking evil to openly call someone a false teacher? Not if they're genuinely a false teacher. Okay. Is it slander to tell your kids to watch out for a neighbor who is a known rapist? I don't think so. My job is to protect. We are to protect one another. Now again, truth over feelings. If you're going to call someone a false teacher just because he asks his church to wear masks, mm, well, that's slander and that's just, I don't know where you're getting that from, okay? That's from Trump. That's not from God, okay? That's from even someone like MacArthur. That's not from God, okay? We need to be careful. But if they are genuinely a, a false teacher, um, can we name them? Sure. For example, like Joel Osteen, call him out, right? Because again, compassion and grief. You have hundreds of thousands of people that are following these people that think they're going to heaven. But let me ask you something. How can you go to heaven if you don't believe in sin? And if you don't believe in sin, then why is there need for a savior? If they've never been told the gospel, Yes, we need to call these people out, especially if they're influencing people and saying, oh, you're saved, you're going to heaven, you're going to heaven, or you need to, you need to speak in tongues or you're not going to heaven, things like that, okay? Paul called the Galatians foolish for following false teachers, and he calls out the false teachers in Corinth. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He goes far beyond just saying they're false teachers, saying they're like Satan, Satan disguising themselves. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds, which he's talking about eternal hell. Okay? Uh, question number nine. What types of preaching are there, and can you explain them? There's no hard and fast rule. A lot of seminaries are going to differ on this. A lot of uh, preaching teachers and pastors will differ on this. Some say there's three. Some say there's five. Some say there's four. 
Um, and even within those who say three or four, they would alternate and their lists would look different. I'm going to give you my list of four main types of sermons, and the first two I will mention are in every list. The first is expository or verse-by-verse teaching. Excuse me, that is essentially what I do. It takes a long time to get through a book of the Bible. It goes deeper. It spends a lot of time in one book. The bulk of the sermon is going to be from the text in expository preaching, not illustrations, not practical application, not stories, but from the text. You, if you're part of this church or familiar with expository preaching, you understand this uh, to be true. One of the biggest negatives of expository preaching um, or a couple negatives is that it takes a long time to get through the Bible. Um, and the second would be then you may not cover some issues that the congregation uh, may have. And so that's why some churches that are uh, really good churches occasionally do a Q&A. So um, the second a popular type of sermon is called a topical sermon where you would take a topic, for example, prayer. Today we're going to learn on prayer. Over the next, in August, for four Sundays, I'm going to teach on prayer. And it's not going verse by verse because I, I have a topic, prayer, or maybe like praying for missionaries or something more specific. And then I would pull various verses in uh, to support that topic and teach you about that topic on prayer. Topical would be the most common form of preaching in the American church today. It is also has the greatest vulnerability, vulnerability to eisegesis. Eisegesis is putting into the text... We do exegesis, which draws out from the text, let the text speak for itself. The reason that is the case is because they, I don't know any pastor who would have the time to deeply study all 10 verses they're going to pull in. And so you may hear of a a topical sermon on prayer and you look up all, I'm going to look up all the verses later in my quiet times. You're like, this one isn't even about prayer. Or this one is making a specific promise to Israel that's not a promise to us. This is how a lot of books like the Prayer of Jabez come about, right? They take things out of context. It's it's topical. Do I preach topically? Yes, I do. Visit us on Christmas or Easter. That's a topical sermon. Um, However, what I do would be closer to the third type of sermon, which is textual. It is similar to topical, but it will take a doctrine and explain it exegetically from a a particular verse or passage. So, that may not be the main point of the passage, but someone who's doing textual sermon will dig deep and explain it exegetically to support that uh, topic. He won't be wrong. It is true and accurate. Uh, For example, you could take Ephesians 5, uh, which is talking about marriage, but use that a couple of those verses to preach a sermon on the love of Christ for the church, even though the point is marriage. Husbands, love your wives. Uh, Or you can take 1 Corinthians 13, which is a, a, a verse on love, 
or a chapter on love, the chapter on love, and use it, as many people have in the past 20 years, uh, to teach on the sign gifts or the cessation of the sign gifts, even though that's not the point of the passage. Okay? So that would be textual. If you like Tim Keller's sermons, you like textual sermons. He's a textual sermon preacher. The fourth type is narrative. Now, there's two different, different definitions of this. The first is, some people say narrative is teaching through a narrative. So rather than exegeting every word, right, and saying, oh, this is how far Jesus walked, and this is, no, you, you kind of get through the story, the narrative, um, maybe not every word, but you highlight certain points and you teach the main uh, point of that passage. Uh, if you go back to my series on Matthew, I did a lot of this because there's, there's no four-point outline in, you know, Jesus went up, walked up from this city to this city, right? But I want to explain the narrative to you. The second type of narrative preaching that I do not do, I've been taught to do, um, but I don't do, um, where the sermon itself is a story. So you just, I would go up and just be like, the night was stormy and dark, and a man was building an ark, right? So it's, it's a story. And the class I took, and this, this was at Trinity, the guy who taught it said, if you're good at it and if you can pull it off, you can even dress up. So I think that would fly really well if I just showed up dressed like Moses, holding a tablet and coming with, and just like, the Lord was on the mountain with me. You know, you'd be like, this is kind of cheesy, right? But some people do that, and some of you have heard those. So that would be the second kind of uh, narrative preaching um, which um, Daniel Tan favors and is planning to practice <laughs> when he graduates. I'm just kidding. You should do that in preaching class and see how quickly you get thrown off campus. <laughs> okay, speed round, all right? Three questions. I received three different questions on lying, including white lies and, and joking. And this is where I'm going to refer you to our uh, website on July 31st, in 2022, I did a Q&A where I addressed white lies, including li is joking lying, you know, when you're being sarcastic or whatever. Um, on January 31st of 2021, if you look at that one, I went extensively on a question I've been asked. It, it's interesting. I think I've been asked this three or four times over the years, and they all phrase it the same way. They bring up Rahab, who lied when she hid the spies. They bring up missionaries uh, in the Middle East and China who cannot say they're missionaries, but they get in, is that wrong? And so I explained that uh, in that one in extensively, especially because Rahab then is a hero of faith, right? Um, January 31st, 2021, a speed round. And, well, I'm not even going to say anything because I, I think it needs elaboration so you don't get the wrong idea. Uh, speed round, question number two, cremation or burial? The Bible gives us no instruction in that. The standard practice in the Old Testament, uh, as well as New Testament Christians, was burial. But there is cremation in the Old Testament. Saul and Jonathan bodies were burned in 1 Samuel 31. Achan in Joshua 7. Um, a lot of people who 
say Christians should be buried, but they won't say it's from Scripture. I know John Piper holds this. He says, you dishonor the beauty of God's creation uh, of the human body when you do um, uh, cremation. But even he will say, but that's not biblical. That is just my view. Uh, People say, well, what about when we get our glorified bodies? Doesn't cremation um, mean that you you won't have a glorified body? No, it doesn't. Your body decomposes anyway. Uh, God, cremation just speeds that up. Speed round number three. Should we as Christians participate in being someone's godparent? Seems like this has different meanings nowadays. For example, Christian parents asking other Christians to be godparents to their children with the expectation of them being spiritual mentors. In other cases, it is just tradition with no obligation other than to buy gifts every year for that person uh, they are godparents to. Uh, Please advise what we should do. Since you laughed... I'm a godparent um, to one of uh, Chris and Diane's children. My wife is godparent to two of them. And uh, I think it's more of a Filipino thing. And and uh, another friend of Chris and I's from college was also a godparent. And we were there at the birthday party. And I, I scared him because he's like, I don't know what this means. I said, hey, Tim, you, you know you have to pay for his college, right, when he grows up. And he's like, what? I'm like, just kidding. Um, so the answer to this question is in the question. It means so many different things to different people depending on their culture, depending on the parents. Some it's not godparents to kids. Some parent, people have sponsors, which is similar, like at a wedding. Um, you can't, I couldn't definitively tell you, could you do it or could you not? I would say ask what the expectations are. Generally, expectations are that if the child, if the parents die, that the godparents step in to either adopt the kids or take care of that, things like that. But I would say, again, with anything that is a gray area, just don't sin or promote sin. Uh, for example, uh, I, would not, I would say you should not be the sponsor of a couple that is getting married to and entering an unequally yoked marriage. Right? There's no amount of culture or not offending family is worth going against your Christian convictions. So being a godparent is fine. Just make sure you are doing things biblically and representing Christ. QR code, website, offering box. Don't think you uh, need to wait until we announce the next Q&A to submit your questions. You can submit them now. Thank you for your questions. Great questions. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. Thank you for the clarity of your word, of that which you desire for us to do. And thank you for what you have left out of the word to give us uh, and to give us your spirit and wisdom to make decisions that honor you even in the so-called gray areas. Continue to help us to be inquisitive, Lord. Help us to dig deep into your word to find the answers for how we want to live and how we want to behave. Help us to be discerning, especially uh, when finding resources online or other places, but just guide us, use us, help us to always want to know more because we want to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.